Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of our weekly Parsha podcast features Gila Fine on Parshat Chukat. Visit elmad.pardes.org to explore nearly 2,000 Pardes podcasts, including the full archive of Parsha podcasts. Are you interested in traveling to Poland this fall with Pardes' Dean Emeritus, Dr. David Bernstein, to explore 1,000 years of Jewish history? Visit www.pardes.org.il forward slash Poland 2022 to learn more. And now, a brief introductory message from Rabbi Alex Israel. This is a Pardes Parsha podcast on the Torah portion of Chukat. At the moment, Israel and the Diaspora are reading different Torah portions each week. So check the calendar. If in your location in the world, this is Parsha Chukat, this is the correct podcast to you. However, if this week your synagogue will be reading Parshat Korach, um, then you should check out our podcast that we posted a week ago. Thank you very much. Happy listening. Welcome to all our listeners. Uh, we're delighted to be back with you with Pardes from Jerusalem. Uh, my name is Alex Israel. I am a director of the summer program and of continuing education at Pardes. And I'm delighted to be here with our faculty member, Gila Fine. Hi, Gila. Hello. And Gila is a teacher of Agadah at Pardes, uh, exploring the tales of the Talmud through philosophy, literary criticism, psychoanalysis, and pop culture. And she's also a faculty member at the LSJS London School of Jewish Studies. So I'm delighted to be sitting here and discussing Parashat Chukat with you. And uh, I wanted to maybe, you know, give you uh, the Pticha, the Rosh Hamadabrim, <laughs> and uh, to to give you, you know, what do you have on Parashat Chukat, Gila? Uh, what do I have on Parashat Chukat? So I, I find it funny with Chukat. It's, it's one of a handful of Parashat you can say this about. It's such a rich parsha. There is so much we could talk about, right? There's there's the red heifer with which the parsha opens, and there's the death of Miriam and the copper serpent, which is a crazy incident. And there's the song of the well, which is also so much to unpack there. I always like the I always like the personality of Ogmela Chabashan, which the rabbinic <laughs> literature turns out to be a huge giant. <laughs> Uh, th- there's so much we could do, and yet no one ever does. Uh, because whenever anybody uh, speaks or writes about this parsha, there's only one thing anybody ever discusses, and that is the rock. And we only ever ask the one question, and that is, what did Moses do that was so terrible? He slightly deviates from God's command. He hits the rock instead of speaking to it, and that results in his being denied entry to the land of Israel, which is probably the one thing Moses wanted most of all. And so everybody always asks, what was so wrong? How does this incredibly grave punishment fit a seemingly minor crime? Right. Uh, and there are many, many answers. I'm sure you've heard many of them yourself. You know, from the Midrash, from later commentaries, we're told that he fails to sanctify the name of God. We're told that he succumbs to the vice of anger, that he lacks faith, that he was judged to a higher standard, that he was implicated in the fate of his generation. And yet, uh, I'd like to claim 
that if we simply took a step back, and people don't do this often enough when they learn Torah, but if we simply zoomed out and we took in Moses's life as a whole, I think the answer becomes remarkably clear. In fact, I would claim that the entire story of Moses's life, his moral trajectory, his development as a man and as a leader might be characterized as a struggle between the hand and the mouth. So this is a story I'd like to try and tell. And let's let's begin at the beginning. Uh, we're told very little about the life of the child Moses, but what the Torah doesn't tell us, the Midrash is very happy to fill in. So we're told that when Moses was a of tender years, uh, Pharaoh, his adoptive father, was uh, given a prophecy that this young Hebrew foundling would rise uh, and oust him from power. And so to test Moses's kingly ambition, Pharaoh places the child before two bowls, one of gold and one with um, smoldering coals. Moses naturally reaches to the gold. The archangel Gabriel smacks his hand over to the coals and the badly burnt hand flies up to the mouth, transferring the wound from fingers to tongue. And so it seems from the very beginning, Moses makes the choice to prefer the hand to the mouth, sacrificing the latter to save the former. Wow. And so Moses becomes a hand, a man of the hand. He grows up his mouth scarred, a stutterer, slow of speech and slow of tongue, as the Torah tells us. Uh, and like many people who have trouble expressing their feelings verbally, Moses acts them out. In fact, one of the first things that the Torah tells us that Moses does is smite an Egyptian man dead, burying his body in the sand. Uh, and so fearing Pharaoh's retribution, Moses escapes to Midian, where he becomes a shepherd, where he famously encounters God in the burning bush and is charged with his mission of taking the people out of slavery. But I'm not a man of words, Moses stammers. I'm not a man of the mouth, I'm a man of the hand, and a leader must speak. And God, in response, turns his hand white with leprosy as if to say, you will not be able to be a man of the hand forever, Moses. At some point, you will have to learn to speak. So you see all of these things really in his, the most early narratives about Moshe, this tension. I think if you connect the dots, it's so obviously there, and most people simply don't connect these dots. Uh, and so Moses returns to Egypt with his mission and his staff, which again, what is a staff? It's an elongated hand. And with this elongated hand, he performs great miracles. He stretches his arm. How often do we have this picture of Moses stretching his arm over Egyptian seas and skies and earth? And he smites the land with 10 plagues until with a mighty hand, he leads the Israelites out of slavery. As a man of the hands, as a political leader, Moses is a resounding success. But once in the desert, Moses' mission changes. He must go from a man of the hand to a man of the mouth, from a political to a religious leader. He must instruct the people in the ways of God. He must speak. And yet Moses remains quick to act and slow to speak. The man who is so used to stretching out his arm doesn't seem able to open up his mouth. And so... 
With the outstretched hand, Moses parts the Red Sea, and with his shepherd's staff, he brings water to the people. Through the hand of Moses, as the Torah says, the people are counted, and with his steady hand, they defeat Amalek. With his hands, Moses brings the tablets down from Sinai, and with his hands, he smashes them. So very many actions, very few words. And in those rare moments when Moses does speak, and I mean not conveying God's words, but his own words, he is always terse and angry and short. It is interesting that Moshe, in this parsha, expresses anger, and it's not the only place. He frequently, it's something we, we always remember the fact that Moses is very meek or humble, but he actually has a temper. <laughs> he has a temper, and it's often with his words that he has a temper. A few parashot ago, we were told that Mo, God says about Moses, I speak to Moses mouth to mouth. So a man who is so used to speaking mouth to mouth with God cannot bring himself to speak to his fellow man. He has no patience for their shortcomings and cannot contend with their flaws. Well, wow. Until we arrive at this parasha. And when Moses hits the rock instead of speaking to it. This is not a one-time error because now that we've seen Moses' story as a whole, we can see that it is an ultimate failure in a series of failures, in a lifetime of failures, to transcend the hand and become a man of the mouth. This is where Moses falls, and it is for this that he is punished. But what's so interesting is that um, Moshe eventually, he says, Lo but Moshe is the person who says Sefer Devarim. And that's exactly where I'm going next, because what happens next, once Moses understands what it is to fail, to flounder and fall, what it means to be human, his mouth opens up. He begins to speak. And once he begins, he doesn't stop. He goes on and on for the entirety of the book of Devarim, so much so that the Midrash will in fact say on the first verb of Deuteronomy, these are the words that Moses spoke. This is the guy who said, I am not a man of words. He doesn't shut up. <laughs> All of those emotions that were pent up in Moses come pouring out in a breathless monologue that will last him until the end of his days. And so at long last, Moses does in fact become the man of the mouth. And the lesson that I learned from this, from um, what I like to call Moses's hand-to-mouth life, mm -hmm. I think is, is twofold. The first, if I were to paraphrase that famous classic film, when you have to talk, talk, don't shoot. There are moments for actions and there are moments for words. And so many of us leap directly into action and sometimes words will do. And the second and perhaps even more important lesson is that sometimes it's our our deepest falls, our greatest failures that force us to become everything we can and ought to be. So Moshe's failure led him to somehow open the floodgates in that way. Um, literally and figuratively open the floodgates, yes. <laughs> amazing. I want to, what you've done is amazing because what you've, you've actually said is that uh, it's sort of like Moshe's tension between um, his his hand and his mouth. But when we were talking about this before, I've been wondering about God himself, because yeah. we have that ambiguity about, 
you know, I'm wondering how much Moses is mirroring God in a sense. What I mean is, I mean, I'll also mention Midrash. There's a lovely Midrash which talks about how did Moses kill that Egyptian? Um, and it bases itself on a strange phrase which the two Jews say to him, do you say mm. to kill us like you? And it says that actually Moses, even though the word is used is Vayach, he hit him or walloped him or clobbered him. Vayach, uh, um, that they say that he actually killed him by pronouncing the divine name, the special divine name. And this raises the big question, where's Moshe's power? Is it in his own brute force? Or is in God's power. And then you remember that the verb vayach, of course, is yes. performed by Moses' hands, but it's in truth, it's God's power. And, and, and one would argue that that God himself takes us on a similar trajectory as a nation. Yes. Because the earliest stories are all about brute force. And even the revelation at Sinai is the mountains shaking and there's fire, and there's this overwhelming sound. And it's all And then there is speech. And then there's speech, and then speech takes over. And then speech takes over, and I think that is the point where speech is, in fact, meant to take over. And I absolutely agree. Uh, God himself starts off with seemingly a show of brute force. Uh, I think a helpful metaphor here, one which is actually employed by the Torah itself, is rearing a child, right? The, The leadership, both of God and Moses, with regards to the people of Israel, is often referred to as as child rearing uh if we think about the merit the uh, relative merits of of speech and action when it comes to a ch- small child so if you have a child who's sort of crawling across your living room and is about to put his fingers in the socket that's when you need action that's when you do need brute force you do need to smack the hand away like the angel does in the midrash uh you can do that with it. You should do that with an eight-month-old baby. You should not be doing that with an eight-year-old child. At that point, you should be sitting the child down and explaining to them why you want to avoid plug holes. Uh, God does this. God starts with brute force, which the people do need in the inception when they're still very young, as it were, when they're still very immature, when they still have a slave mentality. But as a way of ensuring the people grow up and progress, God graduates from action to speech. I think Moses is meant to follow in that same path, and that's where he begins to fail, where he sort of diverges from God, where God does, in fact, go transcend into speech, and Moses fails to follow him there. Right. Or at least until the very end, where he ultimately succeeds. Right. Well, so I've been wondering, thinking about this, first of all, I've been wondering, because we've just had this... uh, you know, Supreme Court decision about Roe versus Wade, which I think is very troubling a good number of us. And I've been thinking that sometimes law, which we might expect to speak, actually is more aggressive and more drastic and more violent than, 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 than maybe we'd like. And I've been thinking about that. But I've been wondering in our lives, you know, what are more powerful and what are more enduring? The words that we experience, mm. are they do they hit harder? Or sometimes people talk about how life itself, when we, the things which actually change us, like they sometimes knock us harder, right? And, uh, you know, whether it's unfortunately sickness or trauma or bereavement or yeah. illness, um, what has more power, the, the, the words that we read or, 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 or very, very traumatic experiences? And just on a mundane level, um, 
I try and generally be a, a, a careful driver. But a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, I made a, t a turn and there was a police. Uh, a, 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 I actually knew it was a legal turn, right. to be honest. And there was a, a police uh, a police car waiting for me, literally waiting to catch me. Knew that I wasn't the only person who turned there and gave me a nice 500 shekel fine. And I've been so careful with my driving ever since and saying, you know, I always thought I was a good, good, good citizen. You know, but it actually took me that rap over the knuckles yeah. to uh, or over the wallet to um, to to actually remember that. And, you know, I can be told to be a safe driver, but it, it took that that harsh medicine. So, yes. What do we say about that? So I, I'm going to do a midrashic reading of your question, Alex, yes. because you framed it as what is more powerful and more enduring? And I think those two adjectives are precisely where the distinction lies. Actions are clearly more powerful. Smacking a child's hand away from a plug hole, certainly more powerful, not more enduring. Words are more enduring. Uh, actions are often perceived as an external compulsion. That's what you just described, a police smacking you with a fine. Words are something we can internalize and make part of ourselves. So that actually has a long lasting effect. Uh, I'm currently reading a book about the brain. And the general thesis is that the, and I, I really can't describe it in exact scientific terms, but the general thesis is that we have two modes to our brain. We have a responsive mode and a reactive mode. And the responsive mode is sort of ideally the more natural mode where we are calm and relaxed and it's a healthier state of being. It's where the brain sort of uh, releases all these good hormones that heal the body and make us grow and also allow us to be more open and try out new things and internalize things and allow for new experiences. Uh, and then we have the reactive mode, which is essentially fight or flight. And in fight or flight, the brain will release certain hormones, which will make us extremely powerful, right? Cortisol makes us, you know, do things we're not capable of doing when we are calm. But that's no way to live in the long term. Right. If we want to allow for certain things in the long term, I think words generally are a much better way to go, which is why I ended up by saying, let's start with words before we leap to actions. Because ultimately, if you're talking about long term effect, I think words can be a lot more effective. Mm. I, I, I'm thinking that in today's world, words have been a little bit cheapened. Yes. Um, you know, brand names all over our, you know, uh, over our shirts or whatever it is, our clothing. Um, and the way that the internet, the information age is just like, words are everywhere and we we doom scroll through our our feeds and through our emails and we yes. I, I certainly personally feel overwhelmed by words and maybe there's so much noise it's difficult to listen to the yes. words like part of what you said the power of words is you actually take words in and you allow them to to sit and to sort of really percolate inside you so how do we how do we how do we make sure that you know if if we prefer words to action and uh, and we don't want to reach the traumatic moments, um, however powerful they are. How do we allow words to resonate with greater impact? Uh, so I think you're better answering this question than I am, Alex, because you're far more a social media creature than I am. Uh, so I, I'll give my thought, but then I would really like to hear yours. 
Uh, yes, there's a terrible deflation of words, I think. It's because we're, we're all of us drowning in this sea of verbiage, uh, most of it unnecessary verbiage, most of it very empty verbiage. We speak for the sake of speaking. We argue for the sake of arguing. We never stop to listen, as you say. Um, and I think when it comes to words, I'm, I'm a big believer in a quality over quantity. Uh, rule. Uh, I believe in using words very deliberately and very sparingly, very carefully. Uh, you might be able to tell from the pace at which I'm speaking that I'm trying to consider my words and use them in a measured way. Uh, and if you've ever seen me write, which is excruciatingly slowly, um, I believe that words wield tremendous power and I'm very, very careful in how I use them. So I, I think when it comes to using words, um, quality over quantity, and we should be, we should know the tremendous power that words have, the long-term power, and we should be extremely careful in how we use them, uh, and and use them far less and and far more um, judiciously. What would you say? Um, no, I, I totally agree with you. I also I find even though I am on social media quite a lot, I really need to control it. Sometimes I'm successful at that and sometimes I don't. And I think you do it very well. <laughs> well, that one of, there are definitely periods where I take any, so I, first of all, I don't have any notifications on my phone. So my phone, I can't, I mean, people get upset because I don't see WhatsApps for hours and hours on end. But if I did see everything that came in through this lovely implement, I would not be able to concentrate on anything. And uh, likewise, when I feel that the social media is getting too much for me, I just erase the app from my phone and say, you know, when I get home and I'm sitting with my laptop, I'll yeah. post then. So, but even even then, it's it just is it's a lot. It's it's really a lot. I feel like with WhatsApp and with Facebook, and I've got two email accounts, and sometimes I feel really bombarded, and I it's it's a real problem. It's a problem, as you said. First of all, we need quiet. Yeah. We need quiet. We need to, I, I'm one of those people, I will not walk around with earphones in the street. Same. I want to look around and I want to hear the sounds and be affected by the sights. And I can't just listen to, some people just listen to podcasts every moment. Yeah. I find it, I can't do it because I want to experience. So. I, I think um, People like Moses who have trouble with words, paradoxically also know to value them because it was so hard for Moses to arrive at speech. By the time he gets there, and this is the book of Deuteronomy, every word is so precise, is so careful, and is therefore so powerful. Uh, I think perhaps we all, you know, have to experience what it is to be slow of speech and slow of tongue for a bit, and maybe we will have a, a newfound appreciation for the precision of which we used to need to use language. So, Gila, I'm going to um, take a couple of extra minutes and I'm going to ask you a question that I really wanted to ask you because I've been at several times at Pardes at the opening circle. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> you've told your story about how um, you discovered um, the Talmud. Yeah. Um, and I wanted you to share that with some of our listeners. Maybe some have heard this from you at opening circles or in courses you've given in, in your beloved uh, Talmud classes, in your classes in Agadah and rabbinic literature. But 
to me, it was a discovery into words in a certain way. It was a journey, a journey towards, not, not away from action, but a journey towards words. And I wonder whether you could maybe, in the light of what you've spoken about, uh, to do with Moshe, whether you could give you a little bit of your personal reflection um, in your, you know, specialized area and how that maybe meets some of the thoughts that you've come out with today. Uh, so, so the story, which I'm not sure is directly connected to our theme, but I will tell it anyway, as you've asked, Alex, uh, and this is perhaps my, my, my origin story, is that I grew up in a, a very right-wing Orthodox world where women um, were not allowed uh, to learn Talmud. I had no access to it. Uh, and I tell the story that when I was 17, I uh, crept over one night to my father's bookshelf and pulled a volume of Steinzeit, so the Steinzeit Talmud off the wall, and just stood there holding it. I don't think I even ever opened it. I just stood there holding the volume in my hand and honestly waiting for the lightning bolt to strike me down, because in my mind I had violated this terrible taboo. Uh, but no lightning bolt came. And so uh, a couple of years later, I actually went to seminary and I studied Talmud. And then I went to university and I studied literature. And when I put the two together and I started um, uh, really diving deeply into the wonderful world of Agadah or rabbinic literature, uh, I fell deeply in love. And I think, and here I will connect to our theme, uh, there are many reasons I, 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 I feel so drawn and so compelled by rabbinic stories. But I think perhaps one of the main reasons, because I have such deference to the awesome power of words, and I myself use words sparingly, uh, I don't know of any other literary form that uses words to the effect that the rabbis do in their stories. What you have is, is three three sentences of a narrative that hold inside of them just worlds and worlds of drama, of, of passion and emotion and conflict, uh, just held together so tightly and tautly and powerfully in these three lines of narrative. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a narrative equivalent of a haiku, as it were, uh, an entire universe held together in three short lines. And it makes these stories unbelievably powerful because the words are used to such tremendous effect. Wow. So I think this is a really sort of apt way because you're really reflecting on the magnificent power of words, right? And the real, the enormous, um, you know, the, the power that they, that they wield. So uh, if that, that is true, we can start it with Moses. But we reach to the power of Chazal and their their carefully chosen words and your careful reading of them. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, I invite you all to come and study at Pardes with Gila, uh, and her classes are a real treat. I see usually the students coming out with beaming faces. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so we're very delighted. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and thank for you, in, in, enhancing everybody's parsha chukat. Even if it is the familiar story, I hope we have many new insights. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. 
If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of Pardes from Jerusalem.